In our last episode, I talked about Triple J, the important Australian radio station that played alternative music to a wide Australian audience. But it's not enough to just play the music on the radio. People need to be able to buy them, to take them home, to live with them and learn from them. Triple J provided a new platform for independent music and music not played on commercial radio, but it was the role of the independent record store to have the music on the shelves so people can make that important final connection. Those stores, how they came to be and what happened to them in the 90s is what this episode is all about. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at independent record stores. I own this store called Championship Vinyl. It's located in a neighborhood that attracts the bare minimum of window shoppers. I get by because the people who make a special effort to shop here, mostly young men, who spend all their time looking for deleted Smith singles, an original, not re-released underline, Frank Zappa album. Let's go to 1996, July 1996, Sydney, and I am 15. By then, I was already listening to Triple J. I didn't like everything I heard, but there was one band that really stood out for me. That band was called UMI. I am going to talk a lot about UMI in this podcast. My older brother had the first two albums, and I used to listen to his copies a lot, and they pretty much became my copies. When the third album, Ali Daily, came out in 1996, I wanted to buy it straight away. I hadn't really bought many albums with my own money before, just the odd single. Having an older sibling means that that rite of passage gets delayed. So one day, in July 1996, I was walking past a shop elsewhere in the city. I was probably on my way to a comic book shop. But this store had sometimes caught my eye before, because it always had music posters up the front. Usually it was for heavier bands like Metallica or Pantera, stuff that scared the shit out of me as a kid and scares the shit out of me now. But for some reason, this week it had posters for UMI's Alley Daily. I wasn't quite sure why this store had UMI posters up, but I figured at least they would have the album in stock, so I went in. That store was Utopia Records, in its location on George Street. It was a small, dark store that was long and thin. They were a metal and hard rock record store, so amongst the CDs was a big glass counter that had all manner of heavy metal band merchandise. I remember a lot about that day. I remember not finding anything that looked remotely like the section where you and my CDs would be, so I had to ask the guy behind the counter. The guy behind the counter didn't look like an average minimum wage teenager in a branded polo shirt who worked at Blockbuster. This guy was Asian, and he looked like he was in a band. And he was. It was Ray Ahn from The Hard-Ons, who I will talk about in a later episode. Ray, whose name I didn't learn at the time or anything, pulled the UMI album out from somewhere under the counter, as if by magic. And he looked at it and went, huh, we still have ones with a bonus disc. Bonus disc? What bonus disc, I thought? Did I have to pay extra or something? Was he trying to rip me off? Turns out, no. It was the same price as Blockbuster. So I paid Ray the money and went home. I proceeded to fall madly in love with that album and the band UMI, and it defined my life. But there was a few other things worth noting about that magical encounter. Well, magical for me, anyway. Like bonus discs. Like meeting my first actual rock star. Like meeting an Asian rock star. And buying my first album from an indie record store. It was a huge deal for me. I doubt it was a huge deal for Ray, or a huge deal for Utopia Records for that matter, because indie record stores by the mid-90s were living on good times, reaping the rewards of this new Australian music audience that Triple J had created, and after decades of trying to fight for their place in the margins, the work was finally paying off. Let's do a bit of history. The 1970s saw the first import record stores in Australia. Import stores are really how this scene starts. 
The rest of the world was releasing so much music, and it was far more than small, distant Australia could handle properly. Even if a local Australian label had the rights, there was only so many albums they could press. They wouldn't keep stock for very long, and that's just stuff that had local rights. Import record stores were the solution. They just got the stuff from overseas. They just stocked albums that no one had the rights to in Australia, or if they did, it was still hard to find. This included super popular stuff on major labels, like Pink Floyd albums, that was just simply hard to find in Australia months after it had been big in the US or the UK. There was enough people who knew about these albums and wanted to buy them, and these import stores started popping up all around Australia, and they were all hidden away in strange nooks and crannies in the city. The late 70s saw the rise of punk. The other three chords in the truth, it inspired a generation to pick up guitars and do it themselves. And whilst bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones were all signed to big labels, the music was so basic and primal that it inspired a generation to pick up guitars and make their own music. But what happened was CBS Records had the Clash and wasn't looking for another one. So a generation of bands learned to make their own albums and created their own labels. There were hundreds, and that scene has since been captured in many, many great books. And even in Australia, far from the punk hubs of New York and London, there was enough demand for all this new music, and we needed a store where people could go and buy it. Many of these Australian import stores came and went, but those that managed to hang on until the 80s caught on to the rise of punk and independent labels. A lot of the staff from those 70s record stores made the jump to the independent record boom in the 80s. This was less about Pink Floyd and more about Black Flag. And this was a worldwide movement. Stores like Rough Trade and Beggars in the UK rose up, run by massive record nerds for other record nerds. And Australia was part of that movement. And those stores that made it to the end of the 80s and into the 90s were able to capitalise on the alternative music explosion. I'm going to go through the history of these Australian stores. I'm going to mention a lot of names. And a lot of the names and the histories were found in my research and I will probably fuck up the pronunciation. So I'm sorry about that. So in Sydney, Australia's largest city, the most important independent record stores were Phantom, Waterfront, Red Eye and Utopia. And Phantom was probably the daddy of these stores. The store's tagline was the big beat in the heart of the vinyl jungle. It started in 1978 by Dare Jennings and Jules Normington. Normington had worked at Ripple Records, one of Sydney's first import stores, before leaving to start his own store. Normington teamed up with Jennings, who had an interest in design and fashion, and ran a t-shirt printing company called Phantom. They would get records from America and around the world and send them back to Australia for sale. Here's Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, talking about going to the Phantom record store in the 80s. For those of you watching uh, not in Sydney and of course around the world, uh, what did Phantom Records in Sydney mean to you? Well, Phantom Records was a, a store in Pitt Street, Sydney, that I used to go into when I was at school and go through and they had not just uh, records, but they promoted uh, local acts. Acts, some of which went on to be quite big, uh, like uh, the Sunny Boys. The uh, Machinations. The Machinations, the Cockroaches, who went on, of course, to be a little band called the Wiggles uh, when they got a little bit older. Lurhoodoo Gurus, as they were first called, who became the Hoodoo Gurus. And a record like this, promoting local Australian music, independent music, was so important. Phantom did well and they hired, amongst others, a young man named Steve Stavrakis and a young man named Chris Dunn. Stavrakis, or Stav as everyone called him, has said that Phantom was the only store in Sydney selling punk records. There were definitely punk specialists, but they also expanded much further. 
Stav also claims that Phantom was the first proper local independent record store. The import stores of the 70s were all privately owned, so it wasn't about that kind of independence. It was more about the kind of music they sold, and the support of the growing independent record label scene. In 79, the Phantom folks noticed that many of their friends were in great bands that were unsigned, so they started Phantom Records, their own record label, and sold those records through their own store. This was becoming more common, a record store that was also a record label. Throughout the 80s, Phantom Records became one of the most important independent labels in Australia, and its influence sometimes overshadows the importance of the store. Phantom was a cool label for bands to be on, and bands started to send in their demos. They couldn't just put everything out, and one rejected demo, by the Australian band JFK and the Cuban Crisis, was picked up by Stav and Chris Dunn for their own label. They called the label Waterfront, and started releasing albums in 1983. In 1984, Stav and Chris opened their own store called Waterfront, yet another store and label for Sydney. Waterfront in the 80s was successful on both the store and the label. Frank Cotterall would join the retail side, 81 saw the opening of Red Eye Records, found by Chris Pepperell. Pepperell had worked at another Sydney import store, Anthem Records. According to Pepperell, there were a few other import stores in the Sydney area at the time. It was a healthy scene. In 1985, Red Eye also started a label. And then there was Utopia Records. Utopia was founded in 78 and always had a more heavy metal and harder edge. The original owners, John and Richard, had been unable to get jobs at import stores like Anthem, so started importing records themselves. Despite the metal tag, they stocked a huge variety of records. Especially later on when music became more collectible, going to Utopia was a good way to buy indie records that were sold out at Red Eye because their audience were too tough to buy blurred Japanese imports. Other cities had similar stores, all as important to their music nerds as the Sydney stores were to me. Melbourne had some of the best. Musician Keith Glass and music journalist David Pepperell had started an import store called Archie and Jugheads in 1971. That store became Missing Link in 77, and they too started a label in 78. In the early 80s, Missing Link was sold to Nigel Renard, who owned the wonderful Greville Records. He let a Missing Link staffer named Warwick Brown run Greville, who would ultimately be the owner. Another one of the staffers at Missing Link was Bruce Milne, who would start his own store, Agogo, in 1979 with Philip Mortland. The Agogo record label was later founded by Bruce and Greta Moon in 1986. We will get back to Agogo, the label, as well as all the other Sydney labels that were tied to stores in later episodes. But Bruce would, decades later, join Warwick at Greville. In Fitzroy, there was Polyester Records, which started in 83, when Paul Elliott, aka Dr. Gonzo, bought a store called Dizzy Spinners. He named the store after a John Waters film and opened an equally important and quirky independent bookstore across the road. Both became intrinsically tied to Brunswick Street, a very important street in the history of Australian music. Dr. Gonzo sold polyester records to Chris Crouch in the late 90s, and it became the de facto home of his label, Candle Records. Then there was Gaslight Music, at the top of the Melbourne city area, with the huge sign at the front. It was bought by Jeff Harrison in 83, and quickly made a splash with their quirky ads and strange things like Nude Day, where if you turned up nude, you got a free CD. It kept the shop in the news and being talked about at least, but it was also about being part of the scene. Here's Jeff talking about what makes Gaslight Music different from other stores. Uh, the idea of Nude Day and many other uh, ideas came from the concept of drawing up a, a marketing calendar, which was essentially no more than uh, what you might see as the Astor calendar these days. Every day on the calendar means another weird and wacky customer at Melbourne's Gaslight Records. 
The only person dressed in a beard wins a CD today. Well, let's have a good look. That looks interesting, yeah. We would just come up with various ideas and stick them on the day. And they were everything from Cat Stevens' birthday, bringing a cat named Stephen, to uh, Chuck Berry's birthday, Chuck a Berry at the staff. Nasty Stain Day is on March 25th. In Brisbane, the big stores were Rocking Horse, which opened in 75 and was owned by Warwick V, and Skinny's, which started in 1977 by Colin Rankin and owned by Simon Homer by the 90s. Both stores thrived in the 80s, a time when Brisbane and Queensland were at its most conservative, having been ruled by the ultra-ultra right-wing National Party, led by John Bielka Peterson. This culminated in 1989 when police actually raided Rocking Horse, taking away some CDs they said were obscene and pornographic. What happened was four undercover officers asked for obscene records for a wild Valentine's Day party. The staff made some recommendations and the cops bought a number of the CDs from Guns N' Roses, Dead Kennedys, The Hard-Ons and others. And then they came back and charged the shop and its owner for obscenity. There was a lot going on in Queensland in the 80s, and this was just part of the police corruption that was coming to light. But it also shows how much things were ready for change. Maybe a few years earlier, no one would have given a shit about a small little record store that sold weird albums. But the raid on Rocking Horse actually brought notoriety to the store and actually made Guns N' Roses rise up in the charts. Either way, Rocking Horse sued the police and won. Guns N' Roses' label apparently helped pay for some of the legal costs. Here's Warwick Veer talking about the infamous raid. We had a, um, a, a raid by the police uh, in Valentine's Day 1989 and uh, it was on the basis that we were stocking this dreadful cassette that not only Myers had but David Jones and Coles all had by the way. It was the Dead Kennedys uh, fresh fruit for rotting vegetables I think and uh, the police raided the, sh the shop and basically uh, figured that that would be a, a, a very easy open and shut win for them, which turned out to be a bit of a major embarrassment to them. In Adelaide, it was Big Star Records. Started in 1988, it expanded to eight stores around Adelaide in its peak. It was named after the fantastic 70s band, and they saw t-shirts and stickers that were essentially that band's logo. As soon as I could, I ordered away for a Big Star t-shirt. No one needed to know that it was a store and not the band. In Perth, it was Dada and 78s. Both Dada Records and 78s were started in 71, again surviving the import boom of that decade, then into punk and thriving in the start of the 90s. Mills Records served the nearby Fremantle. In Canberra, Impact Records started in the late 70s and was joined by Landspeed in 1994. I love the generational history of these stores, that someone who worked at an import store started Phantom or Red Eye or Missing Link, and the people who worked at those stores would start their own stores later on. But these stores all worked together too. They would sell records to each other. And these stores were part of a global network. In the 80s, rough trade started in the UK. It also became a label, but it was also the heart of an independent distribution network. They would help get independent music to like-minded stores around Europe. Same in Australia. And many stores would help distribute cool records to other stores. The line between the shop, the label, and the distribution network was sometimes hard to find. Most of the staff did all three, and there were more than just a series of unconnected shops. Hey! Your tape. It's good. I know. We made it. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's rough, but unbelievably it shows promise. I'll put out your record. I went to visit all these stores as soon as I was old enough. 
In the late 90s, in my late teens, I followed bands or the big day out around the country. And during the days, I hunted down these stores. I took the stickers from the counters, bought a lot of cool stuff, and got to see these places that meant so much to so many. But of course, for me, it was the stores in Sydney where I misspent my youth. I loved hanging out at these stores and spent a lot of time in them. If they were just a place to give someone money in exchange for some plastic, then there wouldn't be much more to say about them. But for me, they were more of a community centre than a store. They were places to hang around for hours, talk to people, and learn something. I didn't always have money to buy anything, and after a while you'd leave and you'd go to the next one. But it was still about the records they sold. Records from all around the world, the newest of the new and the weirdest of the weird. Many of these stores had strong emphasis on local bands. Heck, many of the staff members played in local bands. And then there was everything else they sold outside of the music itself. Like things to read. There was always a huge selection of books, magazines, street press and fanzines. Import magazines were incredibly important. It meant you could know what was hot in the UK within days and not have to wait months. It still takes months for the latest music magazines to hit Australian newsstands. Then there was fashion, t-shirts, badges, stickers. The Waterfront Records t-shirt wall was a thing of wonder. Utopia Records, who had that more metal and hard rock focus, had huge displays of lunchboxes and stickers for their bands. I wish I liked that music more. There's so much to get into. Gig tickets was another big draw for these stores. Before the days of the internet, the only real place where you could buy tickets in advance to indie shows were these stores. People used to line up outside Red Eye to get a hot ticket to something. But for me, it was the box sets. That was my very expensive music drug. Often behind the counter or behind glass, these sexy packages with thick booklets telling a story in words, pictures, and music. I will now sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. Do it. As well as learning about bands, these stores also helped you get close to the bands. If you were a real fan, you bought from these stores because often they had bonus discs or signed editions or something special. There would be in-stores when a band would come and sign CDs and meet the fans. Sometimes they would even play a few songs. That You Are My album I bought from Utopia? That album, Ali Daily, came with a bonus disc. And that disc was a live set from Gravel Records in Melbourne when the band set up in the car park for a free show. Here's a clip of a news report talking about an in-store at Impact Records. Young fans of heavy metal music had a bonus today with the arrival in Canberra of infamous English band Motorhead. The band's first public appearance in the national capital was at Impact Records, where Phil Campbell and Wurzel met with fans and signed copies of their records. Other band members, Filthy and Lemmy Sick, were unable to make the promotional event. Motorhead, which is famous for hits such as Love You Like a Reptile, are on their second Australian tour. I loved it all because beyond the music, beyond the community centre, and beyond the t-shirts and magazine, were the people. For a dumb kid like me, I was fascinated and in love with all the people. Smart, musical, nerdy people who seemed to know all the mysteries and could sell me clues at $30 a pop. Sure, some weren't great, but some became great friends, and a lot of them were just great to have a beer and a chat. Some staff picks were important, and I quickly learned who had my tastes and who did not. Sometimes you'd even get served by an actual rock star. Yes, Rayan of the Hard-Ons, but also Nick Kennedy from Big Heavy Stuff, or Chuck Jenkins from Ice Cream Hands, or Steph from Something for Kate. It's actually incredible in retrospect how many people in the bands covered in this podcast sold CDs as a day job. But the hours and the flexibility was great for jobbing musicians. And yes, it's all a bit high fidelity. That wonderful book by Nick Hornby about people who work at an independent record store. Sometimes there was comical snobbiness. I have witnessed long, heated arguments about the merit of Paul McCartney's solo career. 
I've seen people told snobbishly that this store doesn't stock Neil Finn, despite stocking plenty of Split Ends albums. One time, I tried to buy a Lamb Chop album, and I was simply not allowed to buy it because I hadn't bought a Graham Parsons album yet, and there would be no way for me to even understand that Lamb Chop album unless I heard Gilded Palace of Sin. I mean, they were right, and I still have never heard that Lamb Chop album. It's really worth noting that it was both men and women behind the counters. Record collecting is sometimes seen as a niche male interest. And the customer base, well, yes, there were a lot of blokes in the customer base. But behind the counter, working, the actual experts, there were plenty of great women telling me that my music taste wasn't good enough and that Neil Finn sucked. So, now why would you sell it to me and not to him? Because you're not a geek, Lewis. You guys are snob. No, we're not. No, seriously, you're totally elitist. You feel like the unappreciated scholars, so you shit on the people who know less than you. No. Which is everybody. Yes. As an English-as-a-second-language kid from the suburbs, Indie Record Store was my first door into a subculture that would take up a big part of my life. Sure, I could hear it on the radio for free, but I could also walk into it, look around, meet some great people, hear some great music, and take it home. It was a big deal for me, but this was a small cottage industry. Most people couldn't care less about these places. I'm sure most CD buyers in Australia never went into one of these stores. To be hugely generalising, the 80s you were on one side or the other. Either you bought music from super hip stores like Phantom, or you bought them from the music chains like Brashes or Chandlers, or HMV or Blockbuster. Okay, that was probably never strictly true. Lots of people bought from both, and people aren't actually that binary. But there was a cultural divide between the audiences. By the time I got there in the mid-90s, that gap was corroding. In fact, I was in that gap. As the 90s went on, the Triple J scene grew, and this whole generation of young music fans came of age that would flood these independent record stores. I have memories clear as day of Red Eye Records after school, packed with kids in school uniforms. Most stores made you keep your bags at the front of the store. Sometimes that stack of school bags would cover the doorway itself. The subtext of this entire podcast about the 90s was that the 90s was good times. Every year the industry grew, and this indie store scene grew with it. Red Eye had three stores at one point, and there were heaps of music being released and being sold at high prices. 1999 was the most successful year for the music industry. The next few years after that saw Napster, iPods, iTunes, and piracy destroy the music market and many of these stores. Then came streaming, social media, and all that jazz. Maybe the industry got too fat and it had to change, but the whole industry took a downturn and these stores were the first to feel the brunt. Phantom, the daddy of these stores, was one of the first to close down. In the few years that followed, Agogo, Gaslight, Waterfront and many others all went under. Others shrunk down their floor space and simplified to survive. In the early 2000s, I got a job at Warner Music, handling imports. By then, major labels knew that they couldn't print everything locally, but they could at least order what they had rights to and send it to these indie record stores. I was the guy who looked after that side of the business for a few years, and I got to travel around Australia and visit these stores for business and meet the buyers. By that time, these stores were starting to struggle. It seemed like every six months, another one would close down. The music went online. The arguments about Paul McCartney went online. Selling tickets to shows went online. And the community centre shut down. In 2005, I went backpacking around Europe. In every Lonely Planet guide, there was always a listing for an indie record store or two. The international equivalents of Waterfront, Phantom and Red Eye. The big indie record store for Amsterdam or Stockholm or Vienna. And I would follow that Lonely Planet map to the address and find that the store had shut down a couple of months earlier in every single city. (laughs) 
What happened to the record stores and the music retail after the 90s? Well, that's for a different podcast and someone younger to create. But in Australia, a few stores still survive. And in the 2020s, stores are kind of back in a new way. Vinyl has had a resurgence and events like Record Store Days have put the spotlight into going into a shop and being a part of the community. The is full of teenage kids, but the kids still come and we still lose a great one every year or two. The game continues to change. But someone somewhere is currently buying an album at one of these stores and walking through the doors of the shop, unaware that they are walking into a big subculture that will soon take up a big part of their lives. And to finish, in 2004, Darren Hanlon, who played in bands like The Simpletons and became a solo artist in his own right, released a lovely song called Record Store. It's about polyester records in Melbourne, and I'll talk more about that store and the label Candle Records in a later episode. But it's the best song I know about just hanging out at record stores, and it's about an Australian record store. Darren sings, a record store, a humble hole in the wall, could you ever want for more? I'll be hanging in the record store. Here's Record Store by Darren Hanlon. Every footpath leads into Another footpath I can't find the place to stop The endless chore But it's time that I went visiting These guys I know who've bought themselves a shop A record store A humble hole in the wall Could you ever want for more? I'll be hanging in the record store Constant questions clawing on I have seen you But every other Echo and the Bunnyman album Yeah, I have all the other ones Oh, you do? Well, how about the Jesus and Mary chant? Yeah, they always seem They always seem what? They always seem really great is what they always seem They picked up where your precious Echo left off And you're sitting around complaining about no more Echo albums I can't believe you don't own this fucking record That's insane Jesus A lot of these people again, especially when it comes to people involved in labels like Phantom or GoGo, Waterfront and more. Those are important labels in Australia in the 90s. There isn't really a history of Australian record stores, but I wish there was one and maybe I should write one. I do want to thank Andrew Stafford and his wonderful book Pig City, which tells the story of Rocking Horse. I would love to read or watch a proper history of Australian record stores. There's a few low-budget docos online about specific stores and some of the clips from this episode are taken from those. You can find the full videos in the show notes for this episode on the website. Also links to some cool articles about these record stores. This episode still didn't really talk about bands and music so much. Don't worry, it's all coming, I promise. Next week, we'll talk about the label that set the scene for the 90s. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Ace. 
find out more about this episode and the podcast in general, check out justace90s.com, which is justace90s.com. Along with the show notes and playlists for every episode, there's also going to be a bunch of lists and other things I compiled during my research. There's also more about the project overall and some frequently asked questions. On the website, you can also find ways of supporting this podcast. There's a Patreon. At the moment, there's just the one tier, just enough to support the podcast. There's also a link to a service called Buy Me A Coffee where you can digitally buy me a coffee, I guess. All this goes to support the hosting and the production of the podcast, which is all done by one lone person, which is me. It also helps keep it ad-free and independent, so any support helps with that. Depending on how this season goes, and if there's interest, I'll do other fun ideas. Patreon supporters will get a discount on any of that stuff, or get it for free on a higher tier. If I get there, we'll work something out. Links on the website and in the show description. The other no-cost way to support the podcast is to help spread the word, tell a friend, share the links, and leave the podcast a review on iTunes. A five-star review would be lovely. You can follow this podcast on all social media with the same handle, at JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s. The Just Ace podcast is produced by me. If you want to get in touch and get in contact, or if you have any questions, just email JustAce90s at gmail.com. Start again.